product of what is going on in Venezuela today is a, is a result of him not listening to his people, bad economic management, and not really talking to, to the opposition to find a, a way forward for the country. So that's, I mean, that's essentially how we got here in a nutshell. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, where I'm joined in studio by Juan Gonzalez and Michael Camilleri, which is kind of fun because these guys are actually friends of mine. I'm going to read their fancy bios in a second, but this is a new one for ER. Juan, first off, is an associate vice president at the Cohen Group. He previously spent 16 years in government service, focused on Latin America and the Caribbean, with the State Department, the National Security Council, and the Office of the Vice President. 16 years, really? You might look a little bit too young for that. Latinos age well. (laughs) Michael is the director of the Rule of Law program at the Inter-American Dialogue. He served as a member of Secretary of State's Clinton and Kerry's policy planning staff and as director for Andean Affairs at the National Security Council. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. All right, gentlemen, so I want to talk today about a country that is run by a populist with authoritarian tendencies, a little bit of a dictator in mind, and it's not the United States. This is Venezuela, which seemingly... There's been no end to the crisis. Nicolas Maduro has been in power since spring of 2013 following from Hugo Chavez, who was the president from 1999. And it seems – I mean I've been in this gig for a while and the number of pieces we've published about Venezuela's dysfunction, about the constitutional crisis, about the protests in the street, about the opposition silenced – about poverty, about crime, about inflation, about war. I mean, it's almost endless. And yet it feels like it's coming to a head now. Maybe finally, and maybe this will go on for months and years to come. But on July 30th, a few days ago, there was an election in Venezuela for the Constitutional Assembly, which was a group of 347 or so odd uh, representatives to determine a new constitution. And this was an election that was sort of either both the EU and Mercosur and the OAS said this was, uh, in harsher language, a bad idea. And then just yesterday, the uh, organization in London that was actually doing the registration of the voting count said that Maduro's and the government's claims in Venezuela uh, overestimated the amount of voters by one million, maybe more. So first of all, why don't you give us a little, someone jump in, give us a little bit of primer about this constitutional assembly and what it aims to do. And then let's just get deep into Venezuela and if it's as messed up as we feel it is. Ben, thanks for having us. I think, look, if you're going to talk about Venezuela, you really have to kind of step back a little bit and, and look at what happened before Chavez came into power. Venezuela was definitely imperfect when it came to pluralism and democracy. But at that time, our relationship with Venezuela, the U.S. relationship with Venezuela, you could compare it to Colombia. It was incredibly, incredibly close. 
but it was a very unequal society despite actually having these oil resources. And when Chavez came in, there were certain groups that thought that he would start changing that dynamic and start making huge social investments. And he certainly had a lot of support from parts of the population. What, what happened was, yeah, he did reduce poverty. He made investments, but, but, but he systematically oppressed dissent, went after any sort of freedom of expression, and dismantled the institutions that really protect democracy and, and, and the kind of active debate that takes place in a democracy. But he was a populist leader. He was, he was omnipresent. He was everywhere. Tactically, he was actually very, very smart. And the, the posture that, that the Obama administration took when it came in was, was that we didn't want to actually fill the space by picking fights with Chavez. And so we, we made a conscious decision to step back and really address matters of principle when there are violations of human rights, when they were dismantling institutions. And, and it gave a space for regional leaders and even the people of Venezuela to actually start challenging some of the things that were taking place. When Chavez died in 2013, uh, the conversations that we had in the administration as I was in the National Security Council at the time was that the successor would have essentially two paths. Um, and this is relevant to what's going on in Venezuela today uh, because they've chosen one, which is the wrong one. The first path is they could have really found those elements of the opposition that would share in some of the really difficult decisions that needed to take place in Venezuela to take it in a, in a good direction, right? Reform the economy, really, you know, try to actually strengthen the institutions. And the other one was to, was to radicalize and continue on this path, which everybody thought that there was – it had an expiration date. Maduro does not have the charisma of, of Chavez. He has continued to oppress dissent, mismanage the economy. Maduro was Chavez's foreign minister for he a while. He was a foreign minister and, and initially and in South America. And a bus driver before that. Yeah, but I mean there, there are many brilliant bus drivers. So I wouldn't use that as a criteria to measure, measure him. What, the problem that he had was that uh, initially a lot of people in Latin America said, oh, this guy's pragmatic. You can really listen to him and pay attention to him and he'll do the right thing. No, he continued to radicalize. And they reached a point when the price of oil came down and it exposed the total mismanage of the economy. I wouldn't call Maduro a populist because he has a very low level of support. And, and, the, and, the, and I'll end here. The product of what is going on in Venezuela today is a, is a result of him not listening to his people, uh, bad economic management, and not really talking to, to the opposition to find a, a way forward for the country. So that's, I mean, that's essentially how we got here in a nutshell. Maybe we need to step back a little bit, Michael, and like explain to our listeners who probably already know this stuff, but why we need to care about Venezuela. It's often sort of this caricature. I mean, Chavez was this almost cartoonish figure and Maduro is I, you know, the jibe of him being a bus driver. But we think of this place as this crazy, dysfunctional country on the north of South America. But it is, you know, it's hard for, I think, a lot of people to understand why the Venezuelan crisis matters. Yeah, thanks, man. So, um, I mean, I think Juan set that up nicely. This was a country that for many years was a, a pretty close uh, friend of the United States. Obviously, um, massive oil resources, you know, potentially the, the largest reserves in the world. And so that, that meant there was a lot of U.S. investment and, and kind of cross, uh, cross-cultural and, and, and people-to-people ties uh, between the U.S. and Venezuela. I think looking at, you know, more recently, obviously, it became kind of the opposite. You know, Chavez was this uh, anti anti imperial anti u s uh, kind of um, figure and 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 helped to for a time at least coalesce the uh, 
uh, sort of a movement in Latin America and, and, and you know, slightly more broadly. Um, so it's, it's been kind of a thorn in our side. And I think Juan described that the Obama administration was determined not to take the bait in the way that the, the Bush administration had often done, I think, with, with some success, uh, speaking of, of the Obama administration. Um, but, you know, looking at the situation today, we clearly have security interests, economic interests, um, humanitarian interests, and, and, a, and a broader interest, I think, in preserving the Americas as a bastion for, for democracy, um, you know, with, with the exception of Cuba, of course. So, so there's a lot there. Um, you know, if we, if, we, if we think kind of worst-case scenario in Venezuela as a, a case of state collapse, you know, maybe even kind of a failed state, um, we're looking at, you know, a humanitarian catastrophe, probably major uh, migration and refugee flows, uh, and uh, a haven, frankly, for all sorts of organized crime. So a major uh, destabilization of, of its sort of near abroad and potentially uh, the broader region. You know, but you know what? The, I would add to that. That's exactly right what Michael said. But another reason that Venezuela matters is that one of the things that Chavez did successfully was he used petro diplomacy to project influence into the Caribbean and into Central America. And so in multilateral fora, they actually started to wield a significant influence on uh, in the debate. Uh, this was just something that Michael alluded to. And that reached its high point, I would say, at the end of 2009. Um, and, and then Part of the work that the, the administration, the Obama administration, did uh, was was essentially try to engage in a, a kind of partnership agenda. Uh, and this isn't a, a propaganda to defend the Obama administration, but I think it's it's relevant. Is that um, to 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 try to dismiss this perception that the U.S. fostered hemispheric polarization. And over time, by actually trying to engage with some of the, the, the kind of erstwhile enemies of the United States, according to, according to some, what started to happen was people started to see that, that the, the kind of Chavista agenda for the region, this Bolivarian alternative, was really not something that was going to provide any concrete benefits to the citizens of the region. And, and over time, that alliance started to be dismantled. And U.S. influence started to fill the space. Vice President Biden, um, a lot of the work that uh, Michael did when he was on the National Security Council to support the Colombian peace process, a lot of the efforts that we did regionally were to really f- take that space back um, and, and, and make the case that the, the alternative that, that Venezuela was actually offering for the region is one that really wasn't going to provide any sort of real benefits. And, and so we're in a situation now, uh, fast forward to present day, where uh, the, the Trump administration, I think we have to recognize that the individual sanctions that they've launched against those that are guilty of corruption, of oppression of human rights. Um, and there were recent sanctions correct. just a couple of days ago on Maduro himself. Maduro, this right. is the fourth round of sanctions. And the vice president, who has $500 million in U.S. assets, then the sitting president puts him in the company of Robert Mugabe, you know. Um, and, and these sanctions, are individual sanctions, are, I think, are good. They're smart. They're the appropriate thing to do. And they're ones that have been supported by a lot of the, a lot of the, the countries in the region. But a lot of the legwork that was done for those sanctions to be possible and for that multilateral coalition to exist is something that was the product of, of a lot of, of several years of work. And I would actually give Michael a lot of credit for, for being involved in this. He's an expert in, um, on the inter-American system and has actually been working on a lot of the multilateral efforts in that regard. Um, where this administration goes from here could determine whether or not you actually lead to a rise of that, that coalition um, and even maybe a loss in U.S. standing in Latin America and maybe other parts of the world. Just to sort of, you know, make this even more, I think, um, 
kind of real, uh, and Juan will remember this well because he was at the White House at the time, um, when, when the Obama administration did the first round of these individual sanctions in 2015, there was a real backlash uh, from the region. Um, as you know well, there's there's this sort of history of, of U.S. heavy-handedness in the region. And so anytime the U.S. does something unilaterally, it's, it's potentially uh, something that's diplomatically difficult for us. And so um, this was, it was, you know, a month or two, I think, before the Summit of the Americas in 2015. It was going to be this sort of triumphant moment where Raul Castro and, and President Obama were going to, to meet for the first time uh, in person following the, the announcement of normalization of relations. The, the Summit of the Americas process that was sort of threatened by this uh, this this you know ongoing you know longstanding uh, split between the U.S. and Cuba had been sort of salvaged and and it was a, a kind of a high moment for uh, for U.S. diplomacy and for the Obama administration and it was it was sort of threatened with being undermined by this um, by the response to U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. I think you know where we are today is is extremely different and that's that's partly because of the uh, the diplomatic legwork that Juan alluded to and I think it's partly thanks frankly to to Nicolas Maduro. Who, who, you know, by his own heavy-handedness and, and repression and and clear sort of authoritarian drift, uh, has made it very difficult for anybody uh, in in this region uh, or in Europe. Uh, and I would mention the the strong EU statement from yesterday to to you know defend him or or suggest that he's involved and engaged in anything other than a uh, a power grab uh, in an effort to to undermine whatever's left of. Of Venezuelan democracy. I mean, it's hard to dispute. Chavez was enormously popular, right? He came in with this grand socialist plan, um, you know, this this sort of welfare state writ large to build these colectivos and to subsidize on the back of oil money, um, you know, a, a, a sort of more egalitarian state. But you guys are saying that, you know, Maduro clearly doesn't have the charisma that Chavez does, but is he not? He doesn't have the money. Well, of course, the oil price is really low now, right? But uh, I think it was Max Vapor. I'm trying to impress you, uh, Ben. Is, uh, I think Max Vapor said that the charisma of the leader is not inherited. In this case, it's very apparent because Maduro is not charismatic in the least. Uh, Maduro or uh, Chavez was omnipresent. He was there everywhere. He had that TV show every morning. Every right? show, we would spend hours doing it, and he was, you know, he would hear from somebody from a local community, and uh, you know, would call up a minister and like. You know, we'll fix this very specific uh, this fire hydrant on your block. We will take care of it. And he was just uh, he was everywhere. And so it was very difficult. And he was also very effective at polarizing the opposition, so that it could naturally unify and, and actually articulate um, a, a coherent alternative to, to Chavismo. But look, you're, you're looking at like today. Let's fast forward to today. What's actually going on in the country is oil prices are incredibly low. They're even lower in, in Venezuela because they have a, a heavier crude. They have um, they had these elections that you'd mentioned, Ben. That at least forty countries now have said uh, that they won't recognize them and consider them illegitimate. You have a president that, by according to international humanitarian standards, himself is illegitimate because he's not respecting hey, the human rights. Hey, ding, 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 ding! This yeah, was, you're supposed to drink every time little, I say we illegitimate. We had a little side bet. Wait, Katie, where is the bottle of booze that I brought in just for this occasion? So that's two shots, Mike. That's why there was a bottle of Juan Zacapa rum underneath the table. These stools are very unstable. This could could get interesting. It is a little bit for our listeners who are listening at different times. It is still pretty early in the morning to start drinking, but that was at least the plan. Every time Juan said that Maduro was illegitimate, there was was a side bet that we all had to drink. That's two. So that's two shots you owe me. But but so, so what happens next? And what does the U.S. do, right? I mean... There's there's this right right now there's an active debate first 
in terms of U.S. policy, should the U.S. level sectoral sanctions against Venezuela? Well, we st- we're still importing oil on a consistent basis, right? That's correct. And then we export refined product to them. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do we stop the flow of oil? Or as actually what, what I think is that they'll target maybe the Venezuelan sovereign debt market, right? Try to prohibit U.S. persons from investing in, in, in Venezuelan debt, which if made retroactive could actually affect Goldman Sachs. Um, or they could inve- you know, prevent investment in PDVSA and-, and uh, Which is the- The, the, the national oil company um, and do a carve out for SICA, which is a U.S. company that actually receives um, funding from PDVSA. That's why I never get gas from SICA. But the- um, the uh, <laughs> You really avoid those gas stations? I do, actually. I will drive uh, on empty. Just out of out of principle for what's going on in Venezuela, but but so so great. I think that will lead to an impact. The question is, what is the impact, and does it actually advance U.S. interests and and lead to a democratic outcome? I don't think anybody. Uh, I think it's wrong to assume that whoever follows Maduro will be better, or that just getting rid of Maduro or having some sort of you know shift will actually lead to democracy in Venezuela. And then secondly, the impact on the Venezuelan economy is something that could be drastic. It could actually punish the Venezuelan people. And I, it's, I mean, can the Venezuelan economy get much worse? Though? There's no food on the shelves. We've read these stories about the lack of medicine, basic medicine for like staph infections, you know, antibiotics, kids dying. You know, it's 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 pretty brutal. As you know, as I said, inflation is extraordinarily high. Um, there's it's a thousand percent. A, there's a lack of access to foreign currency or any other currency. Um, there's Criminality. I mean, Caracas, I think, has one of the highest, if not the highest, murder rate in the world. It's hard to imagine it could get a whole lot worse for the people who are there. It can get worse if you totally shut off any sort of access to dollars to to the Venezuelan economy. And and what it's unclear, at least the administration has not articulated a vision of what happens the day after those sanctions are levied. And is the U.S. actually willing to step in and own the consequences? And, and then third, really thought about the second and third order effects in terms of U.S. influence, because yes, countries have come out and supported the sanctions today. Uh, if the U.S. appears to be overly heavy-handed, all that work to dismantle the Bolivarian alternative could be something that would lead to a rise to opposition of U.S. Uh, international influence in the region. And Europe and others could come out and say, look, the U.S. is – and then most, most importantly, we'd essentially be proving the argument that Maduro has been trying to make, which is that the U.S. imperialists have been trying to take him down, which is, is, is ridiculous. So this has to happen from within. But what – Michael, what's the status of the, the opposition? The opposition is all is often um, accused of being sort of disunited and, and divided and, and, and ineffective. And in the past, it's you know made strategic mistakes. Everything from you know uh, supporting a coup against Chavez in two thousand two, at least parts of the opposition, to boycotting legislative elections that, that essentially shut it out of the uh, the policy making pro- process. You know, I think in in recent years they've come a long way uh, in terms of having, for example, primaries to to run with. Uh, you know, sole candidates for for seats, including the presidency. Um, there, there remain. You know, it, it's still a, a kind of a composed of a gamut of parties that 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 kind of span the the ideological spectrum um, from sort of center right to uh, disaffected chavistas. So, so there is there may be not a ton there that they agree on, except for you know the fact that Maduro needs to go and that um, elections need to take place and that the. The constitution of the country needs to be respected. Um, frankly, right now, that's probably enough, um, and that's a that's you know that's a pretty 
you know, real and, and significant and, and, and I think uh, meaningful agenda. Um, and, you know, what comes next will be really complicated. I would not want to be the, you know, the person who takes over, uh, inherits Venezuela after, after Nicolás Maduro, whenever that happens. Um, I mean, there are some charismatic figures in the opposition, right? There's Leopoldo López. Sure, Leopoldo López, who was, who was, you know, dragged off to, to jail again uh, a couple of right. nights he ago. He was in jail for the past three years, that Yeah, right? recently released, you and know, just before this vote. Arrest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what his charges were? is to send subliminal message, uh, messages to the public of insurrection, which is... Which is I didn't know that was in the Venezuelan, but that's that was the charge. So, he's a mind reader, yeah, or mind conveyor. But he's a charismatic. I've met him twice, and the and the man is a very charismatic, brilliant man. There are others uh, that that I know you know as well that 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 actually have the potential to be leaders in Venezuela. The the problem is this: the institutions and the system is 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 not is essentially broken down. And then you have these armed paramilitary groups, which are called colectivos, which are around kind of enforcing uh, this perverted version of, of 21st century socialism as articulated by by President Maduro. Um, and so regardless of... of these are criminal gangs or are they sort of ideologically based? I, I mean, how would you describe them? They were sort of loosely affiliated with, with the government. Oh, they're... they're actually, they, they date to sort of before um, Chavismo and, and have a kind of social community kind of tradition, um, but have been sort of weaponized both figuratively and literally by um, by this government. Um, but I think it would be wrong, and I think, you know, Juan alluded to this, they, they are, they, the allegiance is sort of a, a transactional thing. Um, and it would be, I think, wrong to suggest that anybody has kind of complete control over them. They've, they've certainly, um, you know, we see them show up at, at government rallies, for example. We see them uh, showing up at the National Assembly to literally beat up uh, opposition legislature, legislators. So they're they're following an ideological agenda, um, but but they also have kind of criminal elements. And I, I don't think um, you know we can assume that they are uh, always going to follow whatever orders come from uh, even this government. So what is this new constitutional assembly going to do, and what's the what's the effect? I mean, this is going ahead. Depend, you know, it doesn't matter if forty odd countries don't sanction this or say it's illegitimate or in a. Uh, I mean, what constitutional changes are going to come from this, and what's the impact? The first, and I think Michael probably knows a lot of this stuff better than I do, but the first thing I mentioned is that this was— He's nodding his head. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that it's taken a while to get to this point. Actually, the, since 2013, there was an effort by the U.S. and the Union of South American States to actually support a dialogue with the opposition, which the Venezuelan government never took seriously. Right now, if you listen to to the surrogates for the Venezuelan government— they're blaming the the opposition for not wanting to enter into real dialogue. But the reality is that since 2013, the opposition has almost been like is it Snoopy with the football, where they go to the table, try to actually get to an agreement, and the government just runs out the clock, runs out the clock. Finally, the Union of South American States failed. The, the Organization of American States uh, took took central role with the leadership of the OAS Secretary General Almagro, who's been amazing uh, um, in this in this space. And, and now, as, as things have gotten really, really bad, um, instead of actually sitting down to the table because there's an incredible amount of mistrust, but also Maduro does not want a dialogue, he sees the Constituent Assembly as the, as the way forward to really get out of this current crisis. And what this Constituent Assembly will do is essentially, number one, it will replace the National Assembly, which was elected democratically and it was uh, controlled primarily by the opposition, right? 
Uh, and then two, they will rewrite the Constitution in a way that has been this kind of uh, penchant by some movements in Latin America that rewriting a Constitution is the way to really implement and codify these certain socialist ideals. But what it is is, is, is a masking for, for autocratic rule. That's, I mean, plain and simple. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think what's what's important to sort of recognize is, um, you know, they can sort of suspend the current constitution, which, by the way, was Hugo Chavez's constitution, the 1999 constitution. Mm-hmm. That's the one that, that Venezuela is operating off. Um, they can suspend that constitution even while they're writing the new one. There's no there's no sort of time frame for this. And it doesn't, you know, we shouldn't be holding our breath to see sort of what they come up with. Um, they can immediately start to take measures that would undo whatever kind of democratic institutionality remains in the country. Uh, and, and I think, you know, Ch- Maduro has been very clear about what his plans are. Um, the first is to go after the opposition leaders. We're already seeing that with these with these arrests or rearrests in the last couple of days. Uh, and the second is to go after the two government entities he doesn't currently control, the National Assembly, in which the, the opposition has a majority, and the attorney general, who's sort of gone rogue. She was a, a Chavista loyalist and over the last several, mo- several months has become mm-hmm. very critical and actually opened investigations uh, into um, – you know, everything from human rights abuses to, to corruption and, and somebody who has kind of stood up for the uh, the integrity of the of this 1999 constitution. So, um, you know, if, if Maduro has his way, um, this constituent assembly will be the vehicle by which he uh, gets rid of those, you know, pesky uh, uh, institutions that are that are standing in his way and is able to kind of consolidate this this one man, one party rule. It's worth mentioning, like going back really quickly to Maduro and the question of sanctions, uh, because the sanctions have have gone after the vice president Tarek Al Assami for for narco trafficking. Right. And so, we, one of the questions that we asked ourselves, and I'm sure that this administration is asking itself, is is Maduro calling all the shots? Right. And the and that's that's unlikely because right now there are elements of of the government that are, A, ideologically committed to some sort of like vision where they redo the economic model of the country. Okay, you put that in one basket. Then you have the opportunists that have that are looking for title and position um, as a result of being loyal to, to the president. Uh, and then three, you have the kleptocrats that are making money hand over fist uh, through the arbitrage and the, and the difference in the exchange rate between the dollar and the Venezuelan currency that are involved in drug trafficking. Um, and 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 the the first and the third group, I think, are are still benefiting from the current arrangement and maybe limiting the ability of Nicolas Maduro to to actually come to the table. I'm not trying to make excuses for him because he's still, you know, I think going in this direction. But it's important to to mention that there are different factors and veto players that are, I think, calling a lot of the shots behind the scenes. I mean, that that sort of brings us to the essential question: like, what is the exit strategy? What is the the way that either Maduro is encouraged to implement reforms or democratic processes that bring the voices of the opposition into the conversation? Or how, how does he leave office and leave the country, you know, without a civil war and a total disaster? I mean, protesters are on the streets now. Hundreds have died in the recent rounds of protests. Neighboring countries are concerned, as Michael said, about refugee flows and cross-border trafficking and all the concomitant problems that come with state failure. But the United States and others have to keep piling sanctions and leverage against this country. And it's hard to figure out how those actually 
resolve themselves without a total collapse or Maduro being thrown into the Hague. Yeah, look, look uh, you know the the best. Um, I, the, you got to figure out. You got this. We got. That's the hardest question. Yeah, I'll let Michael take it. Yeah, um, I got all the answers here. Um, no, it's, yeah, look, it's difficult. I think if we if we knew the answer, um, a lot of these policy questions would be would be easier to resolve. I think you know the best exit ramp, frankly, was the Venezuelan Constitution, which provided for. Uh, the usual things, right? You know, people deciding who they want to lead their country, uh, separation of powers, a, a government accountable to the rule of law. Um, if, if they had followed the Constitution, had elections, you know, regional elections this year, you know, presidential elections next year, you know, they would have found their way out of this, you know, politically and, and I think uh, ultimately sort of economically uh, as well. Um, that no longer is in the cards. I mean, that's, that's, that's why this July 30th thing was so significant. It, it sort of closed off those exit ramps. And so now the, now the solution is going to have to be um, something that's sort of ad hoc, that's improvised. Um, and you can imagine kind of a best case scenario where yeah, some combination of, you know, massive street mobilization, uh, which, which the opposition has, has been able to muster over the past, you know, few months and, and you know, an, an expansion of that uh, and a continuation of that combined with, you know, sustained united uh, multilateral international pressure um, causes some of the kind of coalition fracturing that Juan was alluding to, whether it's, you know, elements of Chavismo or the military or, you know, eventually... Um, and that's you know, some sort of coup, right? The military well, decides I, ideally, at some point it's yeah. not worth defending Maduro and his you know, inner circle and they either sanction or allow the protesters to, you know... Storm the presidential. Yeah, potentially, or they simply, you know, they 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 pull Maduro into a room and say, "Hey, it's time to yeah. to sit down and and you know have a serious negotiation, not like the you know the farce that we had last year." Um, so so there's there's pressure brought to him to a point where he's forced to to actually engage in a, a you know a serious. Uh, a, you know, negotiation, um, maybe mediated by elements of the international community, in which there's you know a trade of some sort, which would probably involve. Um, you know, high doses of, of immunity and, and, and amnesty for uh, criminal misconduct by those close to the regime, including the military, in return for a transitional timeline, including recognition of the National Assembly, freedom of political prisoners, and elections. I think that's that's probably about as, as good a scenario as you can imagine right now. Now, there are, you know, plenty of, of very principled uh, you know, Venezuelan opposition folks who would object to elements of that. But I think where we are right now is that that's, that's maybe the best we can, we can, you know, realistically hope for. There is a worst case scenario, which is that you it's know, ugly. Both, both sides are sort of become entrenched. Uh, you have, you know, fringe opposition elements that begin to call for, you know, violent means where, where democratic means have failed. Uh, and this thing can, can really spiral. And, and, you know, if we think about the military stepping in, Latin America has a long history of military stepping in, and it's not – it doesn't usually end well, right? Um, it, it's, it's sometimes, you know, power for ourselves. It's, it sometimes means that the military itself is split, and then you've got different groups with guns shooting at each other. So uh, I, I am not at all um, flip uh, about kind of, you know, where, where the scenarios lead on this. And I think that's why the, the kind of serious attention of both the Trump administration and the international community right now is, is so urgent. You know, what's the, the challenging thing and is that this is going to be a challenge for U.S. policy. Uh, you know, Michael and I have been in countless deputies and principals committee meetings, and, and we know that when it comes to some of these issues, be it Syria, North Korea, there's never like a, it's not black and white. You know, the answers are never neat 
in terms of how to actually advance U.S. interests or try to promote the right, the right, right response. That is also true in Venezuela, as as Michael has outlined it. There's no like switch that can be flipped or one thing that the U.S. can do that can also that will restore Venezuelan democracy and and its rightful place as a as a, as a regional leader. And and so this is something that, regardless of what the administration does, I think is going to follow it for the rest of this term, much like the the Honduras issue. There was um, in 2009 the 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 president of Honduras, Elia, was was removed by the military, and, and the U.S. response um, is has been often criticized as actually supporting a coup, which is wrong. Uh, <laughs> but it was because there was no <laughs> as a subject for another That's podcast. Right. But it's <laughs> but it's just that it's just that actually trying to support an electoral outcome to these situations which are gray, you know, long gone are the days of military juntas that just take over a dictatorship. It's much more murky now, and it's it's they're going to be a lot of lot of uh, uh, minds, I think, for for the United States um, foreign policy in this regard. Yeah, I mean, I just worry, and I think people should worry that there's. It seems like there's less of an off ramp now, right? As each right. tranche of sanctions gets imposed, when Maduro's constitutional assembly changes the constitution and embeds the autocracy that you guys are talking about, it makes it less likely that there's a way for Maduro and his inner circle to either receive amnesty or to engage in a conversation with an opposition that is increasingly taking to the streets. Um, We've seen in some places in you know, some African countries where the seeds of dictatorship have started to take root from a democratic election, that there are some avenues. There's this Mo Ibrahim Prize that is, you know, awards what is the million dollars or a couple million dollars to African leaders who willingly step down. I can't see Maduro being given a chaired professorship at Wesleyan University, although he might actually do well there. He would suffice with a plane ticket to Cuba, maybe. Well, that's one of the things that <laughs> that I've heard the argument made that the Obama administration's overtures to Cuba uh, and pulling Cuba relaxing the embargo, pulling Cuba back a little bit more closely into the U.S. orbit, made it less likely in the the Cuban-Venezuelan relationship of um, both ideological and economic uh, aid back and forth, um, you know, made Cuba a very convenient ally. But that's not – that wasn't quite there towards the end of the Obama administration. It may be a little bit more so now that Trump is sort of reimposing some of the sanctions. Can Maduro go and end up in Havana anymore? Will the Cubans even tolerate that? Yeah, I think they will. I mean, the role of Cuba is something that's that's you know debated um, a lot when it comes to Venezuela. Um, you know, there's a and with Maduro specifically, Maduro spent serious time in Cuba. He often kind of flies there surreptitiously for a day or two to kind of talk about things. And so there's there's a a personal kind of relationship with Maduro himself. Um, you know, beyond that which exists with Venezuela or, or Chavismo more more broadly. Um, you know. They, you know, there's still kind of an, an economic relationship there. You know, the, the, the Venezuelans, even with their their current circumstances, are still sell, sending you know something in the order of fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars barrels of, of oil a uh, day to to Cuba, helping to to kind of keep that economy afloat. And in return, you know, the Cubans send uh, doctors and spies, and 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 you know, kind of they, they barter people essentially. I, I think the maybe the most significant thing that that we can say for sure about that relationship is. Um, you know, beyond the fact that it's close and that, that Maduro always, I think, will have a, a home in in Havana to escape to if he ever decides to take it. But um, the the infiltration and the presence of, of Cuban military and intelligence officers in the Venezuelan armed forces 
probably has a um, ha- has the effect of limiting the um, the chatter um, and uh, any kind of splits and plotting you may have otherwise seen in the armed forces. Not saying it doesn't exist, couldn't exist, but but I think Maduro is able to control that and and understand it uh, in a in a in a different way uh, thanks to the presence of, of the Cubans who are there and who are you know completely loyal to him. Venezuela is probably the only country, at least that I know of, that has subsidized its own colonization on the part of Cuba. And, and that's that's true because, I mean, I think that a lot of the, the moves to consolidate power, I think, mirror some of uh, the, the history of, of the Castro takeover and how they actually consolidated political power in the country. And I think even despite, even after the change in, in policy, and I actually was lucky enough to travel with uh, Vice President Biden to Brazil um, for the January first 2015 inauguration of Dilma Rousseff. And it was right after the, the, the Cuba rollout had taken place. And man, I thought people were going to start high-fiving Biden. And it was palpable, the understanding that, that U.S. policy had changed and that it was less about, um, you know, dictating terms to the region and more about really treating the region with respect. And so it changed, it changed the dynamic. But still, as, as, as Michael alluded, the Cubans just see diff- things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 when we actually talk, and, and, and I would say parts of the region as well, is when we, we at first, before we got to the crisis levels, had conversations with the Cubans or with other c- countries in the region about Venezuela, their focus was stability. Our focus was electoral uh, democratic outcome. And while those two often overlap, they, they aren't the same thing. And so um, the conversations often went in different directions. Now most of the region has actually coalesced behind the need to do something about Venezuela. But I think Cuba still thinks that, look, there's an economic model that they're trying to change here. We've had it even worse. They're probably saying to Maduro, you think this is bad. I mean, look at look at the 70s in, in Cuba and what we had to go through. So I, I think to a certain extent, the advice they, they may be getting may not be applicable to a messy uh, democracy that is they're just saying, wait like it Venezuela. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah, saying, look, we, we went through the special period. We didn't have oil. You guys are going to be fine. You know, you just got to just got to tough it out. Oil prices uh, will come back up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, President Santos of Colombia made a, a trip to, to Havana a couple of weeks ago, ostensibly to sort of thank the Cubans for their help with the peace process. But you know, it's pretty widely known that he, he tried to you know make a run at this, tried to get the Cubans to be constructive. To back away to, from Venezuela. Well, not bit? to back away, but to, you know, have a quiet word with Maduro and say, hey, like you're, you know, um, you're putting your country at risk. You know, maybe, you know, try Try something different, uh, and and he didn't get very far. And I, and I think um, you know, unless Maduro really is on the brink of of kind of falling, I, I don't see the Cubans, um, you know, appreciating their own interests in Venezuela in a different way than they have uh, thus far. And I think Juan laid that out pretty well. That's sort of depressing, isn't it? I feel like every podcast I host ends on this depressing note that there's no good outcome. Dictatorships and authoritarianism will continue um, in Venezuela, but there are other bright spots. Colombia's, you know, implementing a peace deal. There are, the region, by and large, is headed. Well, the region, right. the region has moved away from the sort of late '90s, early 2000s. You know, the strong Bolivarian socialism. Right there's a you know more, uh, I, I guess, responsible leadership. Well, Brazil is a. Is a size. Well, well, Brazil is interesting, right? Because I mean, you know, now Lula is, is obviously is, his legacy is very much tarnished by sure. the, the corruption issue. But but he was as influential as anybody in sort of debunking this this Bolivarian model. I mean, he he came in, you know, with impeccable kind of 
you know, leftist credentials and said, you know, actually, we can combine a market-based economy with aggressive social spending. We can pull tens of millions of people out of poverty. We can transform, you know, Brazil uh, for generations. And he and he did that. I mean, he was riding a commodity boom, and he had a lot of money to play with. But um, but the, you know, the, the the model in Latin America ceased to be Chavez and, and became Lula after mm-hmm. that. And it was, uh, you know, I think, you know, whatever his his legacy ends up being and. In Brazil, I think you know we we need to kind of remember you know the role that he played in changing the uh, the hemispheric conversation at that particular moment by by bringing this this new model to bear. And Brazil's institutions are actually, I think they're 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 handling well the series of corruption scandals that have you know brought down President Rousseff, almost brought down President Temer. Like this is like these are the these institutions. Institutions matter, uh, and and so. Uh, I think Venezuela or Brazil will come out in a good place. Unfortunately, what happened in Venezuela was Chavez's dismantling of those institutions means that the outcome here may not be a good one. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, for people to remember two things. One, that, you know, while we talk about this from a 30,000-foot sort of point of view with two guys who are experts on this, there are a lot of people suffering on the ground. Both, yeah. you know, you know, uh, there are people on the protest lines who are getting killed. Uh, but there are the average citizens who don't have food, who have to scrape by for medicine, uh, and the you know the impact to uh, countries in the region and the impact in the United States could be devastating if it falls. I think you know we are worried about North Korea and its nukes and um, you know Syria, um, but this is a conflict that's a lot closer to home. That's right. A lot of our listeners uh, that could turn out to be the most destabilizing, most difficult thing that President Trump has to deal with. So we'll have you back when uh, when that does happen. <laughs> uh, Juan, Michael, thanks, buddies. Uh, this was fun. Thank uh, you. Next time, I promise we will actually drink. We'll do this later in the we'll afternoon. Do in the afternoon, absolutely. All right, ER listeners, we'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.